Welcome back to the Podvocate. In light of January being Human Trafficking Awareness Month, today we have two guests from the Legal Aid Society of Metropolitan Family Services to speak about their work. Alihia Milan provides case management and counseling services for victims of trafficking, and Kimberly Fay helps victims navigate the complex immigration system to achieve stability and security. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for coming on the podvocate today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do with the Legal Aid Society and maybe a little bit about your career path on the way there? Sure. So with Legal Aid Society, I am currently the program coordinator of social services. So it used to be the Victim Legal Assistance Network. Uh, some granting things changed, so now it's uh, social services. And what I do is I provide case management and counseling services to not only our Legal Aid Society clients, but also some of the Metropolitan Family Services uh, clients that we get referred in. So a few months ago for this podcast, we spoke to Judge Virginia Kendall about human trafficking. And Mm -hmm. I think that helped to give our listeners a sense of the big picture scope of human trafficking, like on a Mm -hmm. global scale. But can you explain a little bit more about the types of trafficking that we see in the Chicago land area? So I don't know if I can speak to the entire Chicagoland area. Um, I know for our practice group specifically, so the Individual Rights and Social Justice Practice Group with Legal Aid Society, about 70% of our cases are labor trafficking and about 30% are sex trafficking. And there tends to be some overlap with labor and sex. Then as far as industries, there's a lot from hospitality, domestic servitude, salons, massage parlors. So we get a pretty wide variety, I would say. So you said that, um, you know, you you speak to what you're discovering in your office and 70% labor, 30% sex trafficking, and that's all happening within the Chicagoland area. So for these cases that you and your team are dealing with in your office, how many of those are um, being transported outside the Chicagoland area and how much of that is really staying in this local area? So you mean cases being transported out, or you're talking about actual clients that are in? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm. I'm saying, um, you know, we're we're aware now because you're here and we're having this conversation that these trafficking issues are present in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Are those, for the most part, staying in Chicago? Those people that are being trafficked, or are they being trafficked across the country? So primarily, the cases that we have are where the client was brought into Chicago. So Chicago is kind of the final destination for them. As far as Chicagoland, where they're being transported out of, we tend to not get a client base of those that are going out. We we have a couple that once we start providing services want to leave the Chicagoland area for whatever reason it may be. But a majority of the ones that we get are actually final destination would be Chicago. That's not just Chicago proper. We provide services in DuPage County. We are extending a little bit uh, further south into Will County. We're part of the Illinois Task Force, so we are now actually going out into further areas of the state of Illinois. Is there something that you wish that people understood better about trafficking? I think one of, I don't want to say a pet peeve, but one of the things that tends to bother me is 
we get this misconception that traffickers or people who are being trafficked look a certain way or are a certain way or they were doing something, almost how you hear about sexual assault where they, they were wearing something and they were asking for it. So that's one of the misconceptions that you, you can't really tell who is being trafficked or who the trafficker is because there's different vulnerabilities for, for being trafficked. And there's different things that lend themselves to, I guess, kind of knowing um, that there's something going wrong, that there's something off about a situation. So not, not having that, I guess, wanting to have uh, an open mind when it comes to human trafficking. Would you say that um, amongst the average population here in the Chicagoland area, is there any, any level of misconception that this isn't an issue? And um, if so, what, what kind of things does your office do to spread awareness and to make people aware that this is an issue and there are things that we should be paying attention to? So LAS, I think, as a whole, and probably because I work there, I think they do an awesome job at providing that awareness for it. Uh, like I said, we're part of the Illinois well, we run the Illinois Statewide Human Trafficking Task Force, and we're part of the Cook County Labor Trafficking Subcommittee, and we take part in the Cook County Human Trafficking Task Force. In general, they, they have a few different subcommittees, but we, we partner with the Office of the Mayor, and wow. we provide, or we just started actually providing trainings and presentations to the core consulate group. So there's 55 different consulates that are present in Chicago, and we provide just basic knowledge in the how they can help, how they might interact with survivors or victims of human trafficking, and the importance in collaborating with services such as ours. Then on top of that, we do trainings and presentations where we integrate the human trafficking information in a more contextualized way where we're providing like know your rights presentations to the community and we're providing immigration and labor rights and in there we sneak in the human trafficking portion of that. So obviously this awareness component is a huge part of what you and LAS does, but yes. um, and, and a tremendously important component because if people aren't aware then this issue continues to be pervasive. Right. But once you, you know, once you have a client or once you're working with a group and you're doing a training, what kind of services does LAS provide to those individuals and to these groups um, to, to help, you know, both stop this problem, but also, um, you know, stop it proactively, but also provide services to those that are being affected by it? So depending on the population that we're speaking to, if it's uh, staff from an agency or, like I said, with consulate office, it's more of a, a know what you're looking for, know what kind of things are out there. It's more knowledge-based. So when we're talking to a population that's potentially victims or survivors of human trafficking, it's more of the know your rights. So these are things that are not right, that should not be happening, that you have a right to speak out about, uh, especially with labor rights. There tends to be this misconception of, well, I'm undocumented, so therefore I have no rights. I, I can be forced to work all this overtime. I can be forced to work for less than minimum wage. I can be, and so on. So it's making them aware of the rights that they have as being workers. You asked me another part to it. 
Yeah, no, I it, I gave you a, a very, very complicated two-part question <laughs> that couldn't possibly have been answered in that short of a time. Um, Objection is to the form. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the second part of that was you outlined perfectly and beautifully these trainings and services you're providing to communities and groups and consulates. But when you have um, an individual and, and you've taught them their rights mm-hmm. and, you know, We've had um, undocumented people on our podcast before that have touched on that before, too, about how, um, you know, just because you're undocumented, you don't necessarily abandon your rights within um, what's allotted to you in America. But if you, uh, you and LAS are working with someone specifically who's either been subjected to human trafficking or is a victim of it within their family, um, what are some things that you and the community can do to help that person escape that um, and, and escape? Because I assume it's a, a relatively vicious cycle mm-hmm. um, where once you're in it, it's hard to get out. So right. um, what kind of, of services can you provide to help that person? So it depends on the end goal of the client. Not everyone who's in a human trafficking situation necessarily sees the danger in it immediately. They know something's wrong and part of our goal, especially at the beginning, is ensuring their safety. So for each person, that's going to be a little different. It could be that they just want to move out of the apartment that they're in, but they still want to be working at that place. Or it could be that they actually want to press charges. They actually want to get out of that situation. So depending on what their end goal is legally, and I'm sure Kim, when she gets on, would be able to tell you more about the legal aid portion of it, where they can help them uh, report to authorities where they can help with applying for a T visa or continued presence, whatever it is that legally they want to take. In terms of social services, it could be something as simple as they want to get their TVDL. They want to work on their credit so that they can purchase a home one day. They want to work on a resume. They want to work on their English. They want to finish their GED. So it all depends on what the client wants. So you guys are really providing individualized, comprehensive services. Wraparound services. So when I was talking about we used to be the Victim Legal Assistance Network, that the whole basis of the DOJ OVC funding that specific network was that they wanted to be able to provide wraparound services, so the legal and the social services component, because not everyone is ready for the legal part, not everyone is ready for the social services part. So being able to have those both in-house was a huge thing for us, and that's why LAS continued to fund it after we finished our OVC funding. So while they're working on their TVs or whatever other legal remedy they're working on, they can also be working on some of the case management and some of the counseling parts, so healing towards a better place. Speaking on the subject of healing for a little bit, obviously working with trafficking victims creates a pretty big risk of secondary trauma for advocates and social workers. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you practice self-care and avoid burnout working in this particular profession? Burnout? I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh, So I am the only mental health practitioner in our team, and I think in all of LAS, actually. But uh, No pressure, though. No, Mm. none whatsoever. Um, So part of it is what I tell, because I also do a self-care, understanding self-care and implementing it. I do a workshop for it, and I've done it for LAS a couple of times, and I've done it for MFS. Part of what I 
tell people that attend a workshop is one, you have to know what it looks like for you to need self-care. You have to be able to identify when it is that you need it. So when I get interns that or students that are working with me for whatever time it is, one of the first things that I have them do within their first day or two is they have to do a self-care plan. I have to get a copy of it and we have to talk about it. So the other part to that is they get a copy of my self-care plan and my self-care plan is on my cubicle wall and there's a couple of people on our are not our actual team and LAS staff that have a copy of that as well. And one of the things on there is to not only have myself accountable for my self-care, but have others accountable for my self-care and be able to pinpoint, hey, you look like you're having a rough day, what do you need? One of the things that I tell them is when I have red lipstick, and this is not red lipstick, this is a fuchsia. (laughs) (laughs) When I have the red lipstick, it's usually an indicator that I'm having a bad day. Because one of the things is you get compliments for someone like me that doesn't normally wear makeup. When I have red lipstick on, it's like, oh, that looks nice. You look pretty today. It's that almost a conditioned pick-me-up mm-hmm. for, for me from staff. So they kind of know that when that's going on, they, they'll ask, you know, is everything okay? Do you need a hug? Do you need a brownie? <laughs> <laughs> Something. So then... The actual action part of it for a self-care plan is, at least for us, it's being able to have three different types of activities on there. So one of them I call a quickie or a daily, something that you can do once a day, takes no more than 10, 15 minutes to do. In my case, I set up an email address for my daughter when I was still pregnant with her. She's now three. And every now and then I'll send her an email. And it's a quick little, you know, this is what you did this day. This is what's been going on this week. So it's a, it's a quick little thing that puts me in a happy place. Or I love music. Sometimes it means it's a 30-second dance party in my <laughs> cubicle, which is fine. I've had a couple of people catch me while I'm, I'm in the middle of that. Then there's the, the weeklies. So the weeklies take about an hour. And those can be something simple like me having lunch away from my desk, or it could mean that I'm taking a little trip over to Starbucks and having my coffee there as opposed to bringing it back and going through emails all over again. Uh, Then there's, uh, I like coloring. (laughs) Don't tell anyone. (laughs) You mean like the listeners for this podcast? Right, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I have a few coloring books in my cubicle and sometimes it just means I grab one of the coloring books and the markers or crayons, coloring pencils and set a timer for an hour and just sit there and color. Then the last one is the monthly. So that one's about two to three hours long. And they're usually planned out because really who has the time to set aside two to three hours just randomly. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're planned out usually on a weekend. And it can be something like a mani-pedi that will typically take about two hours. Or it can be a pre-booked massage. In my case, it can be binge watching because, you know, you can only take so much Mickey Mouse Club during the week yeah. that you need to go out and see something else. So uh, currently I did I did a stretch where I did Dexter and Homeland and... Um, nice casual lightweight TV. Yeah, yeah. Light, light TV. Um, I think right now I'm on Criminal Minds. So I started all the way from the beginning. And I sense a theme there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you, you know, you've outlined these, these amazing strategies. You've got mm-hmm. a daily, a weekly, a monthly, and, mm-hmm. and I think those are all really practical things that mm-hmm. all of us can implement in our day-to-day lives and weekly lives, monthly lives, obviously. Right. Um, I think for me, what 
you know, one thing that you didn't touch on that I'd love for you to weigh in on is how you're able to take your own personal self-care and these plans that you've outlined. And, and, you know, I think it's smart to have people hold you accountable to make sure you're taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. How do you take that energy that you've created for yourself and that plan you've created for yourself um, and, and assist your clients and the people you're working with and help them figure out what they need to do for their own self-care? So one of the things that I tell my clients and one of the things that I tell participants when they attend the workshop is that the things that work for me aren't necessarily going to work for you. Not everyone can sit by the window and color for an hour and be like, oh, I feel wonderful. I'm ready to face today. That's not going to be everyone. Just like you'll see on my plan, I, I am not the let me go out at 5 o'clock in the morning and do a five-mile run. <laughs> I will not run unless there is something chasing me. <laughs> I will not run. That's not self-care for me. So one of the things that we talk about is figuring out what works for you. And sometimes it's trial and error. Try the coloring. It doesn't work. Try the deep breathing. That doesn't work. Try the running. That doesn't work. Try something else. So, but also do a wide variety. So not everything is going to be, I have to do it by myself. Sometimes you need somebody else with you to go to a movie, and maybe that's part of your self-care. Sometimes that means you need to do some sort of, what's the word, dexterity type of Mm -hmm. thing. So like the coloring or some sort of physical activity like the running, maybe the walking, maybe it's yoga, maybe it's the the high intensity interval type of training. Again, not me. (laughs) I am the coloring person. (laughs) But those are things that with a client, we go over a couple of different options and we try one or two and try them at home, see how that works. Did that work for you? Did that help any? What did you like? What did you not like? And we'll report on it the next week. You're not gonna find these things quickly. You're not gonna find them right on the first try. Sometimes it'll take you a couple of sessions to figure that out. But just like knowing when it is that you need Mm self-care. You're not gonna go on and put on red lipstick and be like, okay, this is how I'm telling you that I need self-care. That's not everyone. For some people, I had some interns that they would put their hair up in a bun, and that was my indicator that they needed self-care. Bearing in mind how important self-care is, um, and also acknowledging that sometimes um, for any of us, let alone people that might be subject to um, the, the heavy topic that we're talking about today with human trafficking, um, it can be really hard to seek out these times and opportunities to do these things for yourself. Um, what you know to to keep that mindset but segue a little bit can you tell us a little bit about what you and LAS are doing um, for human trafficking awareness month if there's any specific events or or even if there's not if there's anything specific you'd like to note for our listeners to be paying attention to and keeping in mind so I know for sure one of the things that we are doing like I said we're we're part of the Cook County Human Trafficking Task Force and with January, we're doing a social media takeover. So every day in the month of January, they're posting either a different statistic, a different tidbit, whatever it may be. And it posts on the actual Cook County Human Trafficking Task Force Facebook page, I believe. And then part of what we committed to LAS was um, reposting that or putting it on our Instagram. And we've been doing that. There's also a bunch of other agencies that are a part of it, and they've been doing that as well. Awareness. Awareness, obviously, is, yep. is the big theme today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, outside of necessarily just Human Trafficking Awareness Month, are there things, events, organizations, 
um, you know, cues, clues that we should be informing our listeners about um, as it relates to this topic? Are there just, you know, groups of people or organizations or things that we should make our listeners aware of to be more informed citizens um, and to be helpful in this, in this ordeal that really does affect us all? Well, I think if they're looking for other organizations that take part in the awareness portion, you can always look at the Cook County Human Trafficking Task Force uh, webpage, and I could not possibly name you all the organizations that are part of it. I know Heartland Alliance is one. I know Stop It is another. But outside of the the main ones that I work with on a regular basis, I, I really couldn't name you all of them. Other than that, knowledge is power. So getting on that Polaris Project website and looking through all of that, going to workshops, webinars, whatever is accessible in your area, and speaking out. If you see something that doesn't quite seem right, you can always call in a tip to the hotline. And there's there's no, what's the word, reprimand for calling a tip that isn't actually human trafficking. Um, so I think it's better to lean on the safe side and call something in if you think something's wrong. I think there's something that's a small comfort that there are so many organizations that are trying to work on this that it becomes difficult to call them all to mind. Mm-hmm. It's I was just thinking that it's, it's definitely, you'd rather have that problem than right. the opposite problem for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Um, and I, and you know, you've, you've done so much for us today. I can promise our listeners that um, if they're looking for this information and, you know, I think for anybody that's taken the time to listen to this podcast today, this is clearly something, um, you know, as, as Jim mentioned before, talking to Judge Kendall, it's a nationwide problem. Yes. Um, but it does affect us here in Chicago, even if we mm-hmm. think we live in a little bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can make all this information available and make sure that we are all more informed citizens who can take part in this conversation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast today and educating us so much about the work that you as an individual and you as a representative of your organization are doing. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. And I would love to come back if you ever want to have me back. That'd be great. We'll definitely let you know. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be speaking to Kimberly Fay about her work providing legal advocacy to trafficking victims. A quick note before we get started. We're going to be talking about some of the forms of relief that are available to those going through the immigration process, but this is not a comprehensive discussion. Nothing that we talk about on the Podvacate constitutes legal advice. We are joined uh, by Kimberly Fay, um, and we are going to continue our very important conversation about human trafficking, um, and as it pertains to Chicago specifically. Um, so, Kim, if you could just first, before we jump in too far, give our listeners a little background about who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, I work as an Equal Justice Works Crime Victims Justice Corps Fellow for the Legal Aid Society of Metropolitan Family Services, which is quite a mouthful as far as job titles go. Um, and my work focuses primarily on helping immigrant victims of crime, which includes um, human trafficking as well as domestic violence and other sorts of crime. So, as a fellow, what are your, some of your primary responsibilities with LAS? Well, I help uh, victims of crime to be able to apply for certain types of immigration benefits. Um, as I said, I, I do work primarily with immigrant victims. We have other attorneys on staff who focus on helping both immigrant victims as well as uh, domestic-born victims. And the remedies are pretty different for those two 
demographics. So there are some, as I said, immigration remedies available for individuals who've been victimized. I know that a large part of your practice is focused on non-English speaking immigrants in particular. Um, off the top of your head, do you have a sense of what the ratio is of your clients who don't speak any English or speak very limited English? The ratio of my caseload in particular, and in fairness, it might be a little bit skewed because I happen to be bilingual in Spanish, and so it's easy for me to work with individuals who are um, Spanish speakers. Um, I would say my caseload right now is probably probably 80% non-English. I have a, a few, a handful of clients that I communicate with in English, and, and the vast majority I speak to in Spanish. Well, I think that's um, you know certainly something that the average person, when they think about human trafficking, um, that's part of the equation that I don't think the average person really accounts for. Um, I'd love it if you could touch a little bit on um, what are some things that you think are common misconceptions amongst the average person who might be slightly ignorant about this topic? Um, what are some of those common misconceptions that you wish more people were educated on? Sure. Well, I think one of the main sort of falsehoods maybe or misunderstandings about trafficking is that there are really two types. Um, I think we hear a lot about sex trafficking in particular in the media. That tends to be the type that's most readily identified by law enforcement. And so that's the one that we hear about in terms of these, you know, large-scale raids and things like that. Um, but there is also a different type of trafficking known as labor trafficking in which individuals are coerced to do um, different types of labor against their will. Um, and that's a type that's a little bit more difficult to identify. It's also a little bit less sexy, let's say, in terms of the, the media coverage of it. Um, and so I think sex trafficking tends to be the type of trafficking that most people conceive of when they're considering this topic. Uh, but it is really important to understand that there are lots of different ways that people get exploited not just for commercial sex, but also for different types of labor. When we talk about human trafficking, this is really a crime that hides in plain sight. You know, you're likely to possibly even encounter in your daily life someone who might be a victim, uh, but it's very hard to identify a, a person who's being exploited just by looking at them. I think the media propagates misconceptions of people who are, you know, tied up and kept in basements or they have you know, these barcode tattoos and things like that. And certainly there are trafficking situations where an individual might experience those things, but those things are not um, emblematic of every single type of trafficking uh, situation that we encounter. Um, and so it's unfortunate that some of these images continue to get kind of spread around and promulgated. Um, it really skews, I think, the public perception of what a trafficking victim looks like. Well, I think you you hit the nail on the head, and I think you're exactly right. This media um, this media concocted image of what human trafficking is and looks like, and you know, with this new surviving R. Kelly documentary that's come out, that's really you know even skewed that public perception even more. Um, so, you know, in your work working with these human trafficking victims. What are some of those remedies that might become available to the clientele with whom you're working? Well, in terms of the immigrant victims, I think one of their biggest concerns tends to be trying to find a way to be able to work legitimately in the United States and to gain some sort of legal status that would allow them to remain here and 
continue to be um, be free from the exploitation that they've experienced. Um, and so there are a number of ways to help them do that. I want to add that in terms of immigrant victims, I think when we're talking about the immigration population in our political climate right now, the assumption is that we're talking about people who are undocumented or people who have entered the country illegally or without authorization. And that's not necessarily always true, especially if we're talking about labor trafficking victims who may have come to the United States on a legitimate work visa, but then once they arrived, they were coerced into participating in a different type of labor arrangement other than the one that they agreed to that's, um, that tends to be much more exploitative and um, sort of under the radar. Um, so I, I want to put it set out there that not everybody that we work with is an undocumented individual. Sometimes they've come on uh, a legitimate work visa and now are trying to get some other sort of legal status in the country. In terms of how we do that, I think the major form of relief available to trafficking victims who are immigrants who need some sort of legal status would be the T visa, and that um, even though it, it's T, it's not T for trafficking, it just happens that that's uh, the letter that they were on when they were writing the regulations. So um, what that does for immigrant victims is allows them to remain in the United States for up to four years. After at least three years, they can file for a green card and apply to adjust their status. Sometimes they can apply to do that even earlier, depending on whether the exploitation that they've experienced has you know, proceeded through the criminal process and if that investigation has been closed, if law enforcement is willing to attest that there's no further need for them to participate in the investigation. Sometimes they can be allowed to adjust a little bit earlier. Um, and so what the T-Visa offers then is a little bit of security, right? It allows them to remain in the country for, like I said, up to the four-year period. Um, most people are interested in adjusting after that three-year period or after the investigation is closed. Um, it also allows work authorization, so individuals are allowed to work legitimately in the country. Um, which is certainly a, a big help and a, and a big relief right, to a course. lot of the people that we work with. In that answer, you touched a little bit on another topic I want to talk to you about is the misconception that trafficking victims are, there are more illegal immigrants in that group than is actually the case. Can you talk a little bit about uh, difficulties or challenges in advocating for a group where the justice system or public perception might be inclined to view people less as victims and more as offenders, even though the alleged offense isn't even connected to the way that they're being victimized? Sure. Well, I should say, I think there is a big misperception that the majority of trafficking victims are immigrants generally. And in my experience, I've not found that to be true. I think the evidence and statistics supports that that's not generally true, that there tend to be more domestic-born victims of human trafficking. I think part of that is because people tend to confuse trafficking with smuggling. You know, that, that smuggling requires movement generally across a border of some kind, where right. trafficking does not have that requirement. Um, and so because people tend to conflate those terms, I think that leads to people believing that 
the only people who are victimized as trafficking victims are from overseas or from other countries. Um, but actually the majority are born here and, you know, get exploited by sometimes family or um, people they're in a relationship with. It can look different depending on um, the person and the trafficker. But I, I think to your question, I guess initially I thought about in the sex trafficking context, individuals who are being exploited for commercial sex and who the public or maybe even law enforcement would be inclined to view as breaking the law themselves based on the type of activity that they're engaged in. Um, But you certainly raise a good point, right, that there's a, a perception in the public and even among some branches of the government, especially now, that um, these individuals who are here undocumented are also breaking the law to a certain degree as well. I think the best way to advocate for people who are in that circumstance, people who might be viewed by by the justice system to be on the wrong side of the law themselves is really through education. And so that's certainly a part of the work we do at LAS is training law enforcement, training um, court personnel, training different sorts of, of stakeholders to really understand and explain what the grooming process looks like in the trafficking context, what coercion is and how it shows up in these trafficking situations, explaining even the idea of trauma bonds and how, how or why it is that these victims end up returning again and again sometimes back to their traffickers Mm -hmm. and helping those people to understand that in these circumstances, this individual did not engage in commercial sex willingly. This individual did not, you know, willingly flout the terms of their work visa and end up engaged in this other type of labor that they weren't originally contracted for, Um, that this was part of a system of coercion, of force and fraud. Um, which are all elements of a trafficking claim. Well, so you provided us so much to touch on um, in your in your answer there. I, I will first want to touch on um, the current climate surrounding this conversation. And you know, I know you've been it, you've been engaged in this work on an ongoing basis for some time. In your opinion, has the has the conversation legally? You know, obviously it's changed publicly. There's there's no question there. But legally, has this conversation changed? based on the climate that we're now living in, in terms of representing these individuals um, and guaranteeing them the rights that they're afforded? I think it has, um, largely because of a policy that came out, I believe it was last summer, um, that's kind of known in the industry as the NTA memo. NTA stands for Notice to Appear. It's the charging document in the immigration context that basically... Um, informs an individual that they're being charged with being in the country without authorization and that, you know, they're from such and such country. These are the various allegations that are being made against them and calling them into immigration court. Right. In the past, prior to the implementation of that memo, there there was very little risk in applying for some of these benefits, like a T visa or a U visa or VAWA, which we haven't touched on yet. I think there, there was some kind of latent understanding 
that if you applied and you got denied for these benefits that there might be a consequence. But prior to this memo, that was never really enforced. And so when this memo came out, we, we as practitioners were informed that when individuals apply for really just about any benefit, and if, they, if their application is denied, that USCIS, which is the organization, the branch of the Department of Homeland Security that adjudicates these applications, that agency now has the authority to charge that person with being in the country without authorization and send them to immigration court. For some people that, I mean, certainly that's a terrifying prospect, um, but to the degree that somebody has defensive relief that can be advocated for in immigration court, obviously that risk is a little bit mitigated for them, but the vast majority of people are not in that circumstance. Um, and so I feel like clients now have to sort of weigh the chances of their case going through and being approved versus it getting denied and then having virtually no recourse in immigration court against living in the circumstances that they currently live in, which is you know sometimes being in the country undocumented, working without authorization, living life basically under the radar without access to a lot of um, really needed benefits, without health insurance, without social safety nets, things like that. Right, which does go to make day-to-day life almost impossible to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Yeah, you, it's extraordinarily difficult. Right, un- unbelievably difficult, un- unfathomably difficult for the average person. Um, but you touched on, you know, you, we've discussed T visas, and you mentioned two other remedies there. Um, I believe you said the U visa and the VALA, is that what it? VALA, it's the Violence Against Women Act. So in the, in the industry, it's sort of shortened to VAWA, um, V-A-W-A. Mm-hmm. What kind of remedies are, are made available under VAWA, and how does that help you in advocating for your clients? Sure. So the Violence Against Women Act has some provisions in it for immigrant victims specifically. Um, and while the focus of the law really is on victims of domestic violence, there are certain cases where domestic violence intersects with human trafficking, where individuals are trafficked sometimes by their spouses. And so if the trafficker or the abuser is a U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident, the individual who's been victimized, if they're married to that person, could be eligible for relief under the Violence Against Women Act. And what that allows is for the individual who's been victimized to petition on their own behalf to become a legal permanent resident, um, as opposed to relying on the abuser who has status to petition for them. Um, So it's a really great way for people to remove themselves from that exploitation, because often in domestic violence situations in particular, and sometimes in cases where domestic violence intersects with human trafficking, one of the ways that the abuser maintains control over the person who's being victimized is based on their immigration status, based on the idea that, or the understanding that the person who's being victimized is dependent on the abuser for access to the legal status. So VAWA kind of cuts off that opportunity for exploitation and allows then the person who's being abused themselves to 
to petition on their own behalf. Um, and that's a much more direct route to relief as opposed to some of the others that we've talked about that have some significant wait periods. Um, right. I think VAWA right now is running about 24 to 28 months hmm. to be approved. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. And then once you get a green card, you know, you're also authorized to work at the same time. Um, so it's a, a much more straightforward remedy for those who can access it. I think in the trafficking context, it's not necessarily as prevalent. Um, there's, you know, certain very unique circumstances in which a person might be married to their trafficker. Um, that's not necessarily the typical case, but it is a remedy that's available if it applies. So that, that 24-month timeline compared to the other two remedies that you've described is, is much more expedited. But I'm curious, you know, in your work, um, is there one that you use more frequently than the other, or one that you find that's more um, applicable to your clientele specifically? Yeah, well, the TV says particular to human trafficking, and so that's the only context in which you can apply for that particular visa. Um, some of the pros about it are that there are, I believe, 5,000 T visas that are made available every year, and I don't think there's been a year since it was implemented that we've ever reached that mark. Um, so there's a pretty ample amount available. Uh, they also tend to get processed relatively quickly, at least in the immigration context. I want to say right now they're taking maybe around two or two and a half years, um, which sounds like a long time, but again, in the immigration context, that's almost late speed. Um, as opposed to the U visa, which is a remedy that's available not just for human trafficking victims, but for victims of other sorts of crime as well. I believe there's 20 or so qualifying crimes that if someone has been a victim of um, one of the qualifying crimes, they might be able to apply for a U visa. Um, the benefits are relatively similar to that of a T in the sense that it gives lawful status in the United States for up to four years. After three years, you can apply to adjust your status and become a lawful permanent resident. Um, but the downsides are that while there are 10,000 made available every year, twice as many as the T visa, unfortunately, there's a massive backlog. Lots of people have applied for this benefit, and because there are only 10,000, every fiscal year that cap is reached sooner and sooner, such that right now, I want to say, if I have filed an, a U visa today, it would be hopefully noticed um, to be put on a wait list in, I want to say, 50 to 50 and a half months. So that's wow. a little over four, close to five years. Um, and that's just to be put on a wait list. I think once you're on the wait list right now, it's taking, I want to say, two or three years to finally get your approval. Wow. So it's a seven or eight year wait time. Which total. to the, the people that are in the position of needing this U visa, seven or eight years is, you know, that's a lifetime. That's forever in terms of, oh, I need, I need help. I need relief. To wait seven or eight years is a, you, you just can't, almost can't afford that. Yeah. 
it, it is a very long time. Um, thankfully, there is a way to petition at least for the work authorization to come a little bit sooner than that amount. Um, and so what we often do is ask that the work authorization be issued at the same time as that wait list determination, but still that's four or five years of trying to figure out how to support your family while you're not really authorized to work in the country. It's, it, it's very, very tough. It's a tough circumstance to be in. I think when it comes to trafficking, the T visa is probably the most common. Um, and we, we tend to favor that, I think, largely because as compared to the U visa, which could also apply, the wait time is so much shorter. Um, it also has, the T visa also has less stringent law enforcement reporting requirements. So with the U visa, you have to have made a report or have been helpful in the investigation or prosecution of the crime that you experienced. And the police or a judge or the state's attorney has to certify that you've been helpful. And so there's a particular form that's required for you to be able to access U visa relief. With the T visa, reporting is required, but that certification form is not. So as long as you can show that you've informed law enforcement about the trafficking that you've experienced, it doesn't matter quite as much what law enforcement does with it from then, which is understandable because sometimes these cases are very difficult to prosecute, um, especially sometimes in the labor trafficking context. Sometimes domestic servitude in particular can be difficult. Um, and so that is a little bit of a relief in terms of people being able to access these remedies. Again, the fact that the TV gets processed a lot quicker and it has a little bit of a less stringent law enforcement requirement. Well, I think, you know, one thing that it really has been highlighted in that analysis is that there are so many different wrinkles to each of these remedies that are made available. Um, and you know, it, it does seem as though that conversation of intersectionality comes into play when you have those different requirements, obviously. Requiring certification adds a whole new dimension to that process. So that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we talked with Ellie a little bit about the, um, the burnout and the mental health component of doing this work. Um, and that, that has to apply to both the individual um, seeking these remedies, but also to you too. I mean, it's got to weigh on you and it's got to be tough. Um, so, you know, we did talk a little bit about how Ellie and, and her process and how she recommends to her clients. Um, I'd love if you could touch on, you know, when, you're, when you yourself, the individual, are doing this kind of work, um, what, what kind of mental taxation does that take on you and how are you able to deal with that and, and continue to be so animated um, and powerful in your work? Yeah, that can be really difficult. Um, I think that's really the one thing that law school doesn't necessarily prepare you for. <laughs> no kidding. Is the exposure, right, to um, to the trauma of the people that you end up working with. Um, it can be very, very difficult. So in that preparation for working in an environment where the secondary trauma is so real, do you have maybe any advice that you would pass on to future attorneys who are looking at the same practice area on how they can 
take care of themselves and be able to avoid burnout? What gets drilled into our heads as law students and as attorneys is to prioritize productivity and efficiency, I think almost above all else. And when you're doing this type of work, that's really hard. It's really hard to sit in a consultation with a client who's been through things you can't even imagine and speak with that person, hear their story, sometimes for hours on end. You know, it could be two or three hours that you're spending with a person who's telling you the worst things that have ever happened to them. And the efficient thing to do in terms of managing time is to leave that interview, immediately type up your notes, you know, immediately get started on, you know, making your list of, of application forms and things that they need. I think the trauma-informed thing to do, the thing that's most, um, most sustainable in that context is really to give yourself a break after that and just kind of take a, a mental, a physical assessment of how you're feeling after experiencing that. And that's, like I said, that's the piece that we don't learn at law school, right? How to, how to really take care of ourselves in that context. Um, because I, I think even in your question, you mentioned vicarious trauma. And it's so easy because of our training to kind of look past the way that these client experiences might be affecting us personally and just be thinking about, you know, how quickly we can turn around this file or how many hours we're putting in or whatever that looks like. Sure. And, and I can't even imagine, um, you know, you use that term vicarious trauma. That's got to be, that's got to weigh on you and that's got to be hard to, to process. So um, it, I'd like to take this opportunity to segue a little bit um, and, and talk about you, the, the individual. Um, I know you do a lot of work as an educator, um, you know, spreading awareness about this topic and educating young up-and-coming attorneys and people in the community. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do as an educator and why that's such a priority. Sure. Well, I think, especially in the climate that we live in, in terms of media, you know, social media especially, we deal with a lot of, a lot of misinformation. And to me, probably one of the most impactful parts of my role, aside from the direct client service, is to do community education and outreach and to really get out in the community, be speaking with individuals, letting them know from a reputable source what their rights are, you know, what the current state of the law is, because I feel like people hear so much about these policy changes or um, it's about things that are happening uh, in the country in general, and there's a lot of fear that gets disseminated, especially when the wrong information is being spread around. Right. And so I really value having the opportunity to be able to talk to people and say, I know you may have heard this. This is actually what's going on. This isn't as bad as it sounds, or sometimes it is as bad as it sounds, but here's what we can do about it. Um, I find that to be really helpful, and certainly in terms of mitigating the trauma that people might experience, right? I think, or maybe to your previous question about um, 
kind of what are the challenges that the immigrant community in particular experiences. Certainly, I think the fear of enforcement is pretty close to the top of the list. Um, and so being able to mitigate some of that fear by providing truthful, factual information, I think can be really helpful. Um, that being said, you know, even though personally I speak Spanish and can reach um, the Spanish-speaking community in that way, it also happens that I'm white. And so I find that for me personally, I don't necessarily always um, cut through some of what these individuals are hearing within their own communities. But I haven't quite yet figured out how to how to breach that trust or um, make myself more credible than you know what the neighbor said to me this morning. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, the, that entire conversation surrounding intersectionality is, of course, correlated and related to this conversation that we're having today. Um, but given that we only have you for a limited time, I don't think we really have time to unpack that all the way. But Yeah, no. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there are so many different layers um, to spreading truthful information. Um, and it, it does feel sometimes like there is a war on truth right now. Like there is just this active interest in spreading the wrong information. And so to have somebody like you out advocating in the community um, it's so important, and, and obviously, um, it's appreciated. Um, so, yeah, I think not just to the community, but then you know, an additional layer of that is having the opportunity to train some of our staff in house, as well as some outside partners and stakeholders like um, police officers and other attorneys who might be encountering the same communities that we are seeing. Um, because again, I think in terms of the trust issue, you know, maybe myself as an attorney don't necessarily have that level of trust with this community. But if somebody is hearing the same information from their social worker who's helping them with an issue that their kid is having in school, sure. you know, I think the more that the true information gets repeated and the more that we can get it in the hands of individuals from sources that they consider to be trustworthy, I think that's the best case scenario and so we do also offer trainings to our other departments in-house as well as like I said outside agencies it's really important just to make sure everybody's on the same page everybody's up to date everybody's hearing the same information so that we can mitigate as much as possible some of the the rumors that get spread around absolutely well um I think that's such an important thought really to close with because, you know, everything surrounding the conversation that we've had with you and the conversation that we had with Ellie in the same episode, it really is about awareness and it is about understanding that there are remedies available and and that there are people like you who are representing these communities and doing this type of work is so important. Um, And so we're, we as the podvocate and we as Loyola are so appreciative that you were able to join us today and, um, you know, whatever we can do to cheer you on and keep this good work up and continue to be involved ourselves, um, we will do. And we encourage our listeners to also check out our website um, because we are going to um, take a lot of these resources that you've mentioned and that Ellie gave us um, and make those available so that we can continue to be informed citizens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly we appreciate the opportunity to 
talk not just about the issue of human trafficking, but the work that we're doing at Legal Aid Society to, um, you know, to serve people who have been affected as much as possible. Um, yeah, so thanks a lot for having me. Oh, it's entirely our, pl- our pleasure. Absolutely. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.